The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. The word of God speaks to us. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is God's word to us. Amen. Awesome. Hey guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with everybody today. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, it's been so fun to walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this is my favorite part of the book. Uh, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know what you believe, this is the beating heartbeat of the Christian faith. This is the very core of the church. This is the source of our hope. This is why we endure. This is why we gather. This is why we want to engage our city, because Jesus is alive. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is an awesome reminder that it's in the resurrection of Jesus that we place all of our hope as human beings. We're literally baking everything on the empty tomb that means that we'll be raised with Jesus. It means that we have hope. It means that sin, Satan, and death don't get the last word. So I want to pray for you. You guys pray for me, and we're going to dive in. And if you've got a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. Father, I just want to thank you for these men and women. Uh, I thank you that you know intimately the things that they're dealing with today. You're aware of the places where there's tension, where there's fractures, where there's relationships that are broken. You're aware of our sin. You're aware of the places where we're fragile and weak. You're aware of the places of new life and joy and beauty. And I thank you, Father, that you're working in all those things. And we invite you to come today and help us to have humble hearts and teachable hearts. Help us to hear you. We pray that those men and women in the room that need to be strengthened and lifted up would find new courage and new faith today. We pray that where we need conviction and where we need to repent, lay down heavy burdens that are hurting us, we pray that you would give us grace to do that today. And we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you've disclosed yourself and your mighty deeds, and your saving works in your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would help us today. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. So if you've been with us for the last couple of months as we've walked through 1 Corinthians, I hope you've noticed that one of the themes of this letter is that the Corinthian Christians were sort of winning the bad church Olympics for all time. Um, <laughs> This is a really encouraging book for a pastor because we get so focused on all the things that are broken in the local church and we could get so depressed about all the places that we don't stack up that anytime we feel like that, we can go to the book of 1 Corinthians and we can feel better. 
we can feel better because this church was literally a hot mess. They were a dumpster fire of sin and disobedience and, and they were marked by the grace of God. Let, let me just remind you of a few of the things that were broken in this church. They loved to boast in their spiritual superiority, which is really funny because they didn't have any. They were really prideful. They were really prideful about how mature they were while in truth that they were, they were infants in the things of God. This is a church that celebrated a man hooking up with his stepmom. They were like, aren't we progressive and amazing? Isn't the grace of God great that we can watch this guy sin and destroy his whole family? Isn't that awesome and aren't we enlightened? This is a church that loved to sue each other over trivial, stupid offenses. Instead of forgiving and letting stuff go, they kept dragging each other to court before pagan judges. This is a church that could at the same time pursue sex, sexual abstinence in marriage, thinking that that somehow made them spiritually superior while justifying visiting prostitutes in the city. They had things really backwards. This is a church that had tons of members that would go to pagan temples and eat meat sacrificed to demons. This is a church that when they got together for the Lord's Supper, th this is hard for us to even wrap our minds around, even as jacked up as we are as a church. This is a church when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they used that as an occasion to shame the poor and to get drunk on communion wine. All right, this church is not really on track. Can I get an amen? There's stuff that's wrong in the Corinthian church. This was a church that had uh, a sect of Christians that believed that the gift of tongues was the end-all, be-all of true spirituality. And this is a church that if you showed up on the Lord's Day, you would have been completely confused because it was unbelievably chaotic. Everybody's speaking in tongues at one time. Everybody's prophesying at one time. They didn't really think about people that weren't Christians showing up and thinking that they were crazy. It was an insular, jacked-up group of people. But here's the thing that's crazy. Here's the thing that I was encouraged by even this morning. In the midst of all that was broken and all that was sinful and all that was confused, doctrinally and morally and relationally in the Corinthian church, the grace of God was greater still. And the grace of God in the midst of all their brokenness didn't reject them. It didn't cut them off. It wasn't like God was saying, there's no hope for you. The grace of God met them in their sin and brokenness, not to leave them the same. That's cheap grace. That's a counterfeit version of grace. But the grace of God was relentlessly pursuing these sinful people to show them that Jesus was superior to all the stupid idols of their lives and to invite them back to the solid foundation of Jesus. This church is a reminder to me and a reminder to you that God is at work even in the midst of things that are wrong. Even in the places that are bent and twisted and broken and not healthy and not good and not beautiful and not flourishing. And if we could just be honest, there's a lot of those places in our families and in our lives. But the grace of God is greater still. It's not grace to justify us staying the same. It's the grace to meet us where we are and to keep leading us deeper into the things of God. And in the midst of all the things that were broken in the Corinthian church, the thing that was the most messed up, the thing that was the most precarious was that they were starting to deny the resurrection. And to deny the resurrection, what we're going to find today, to deny the resurrection is to miss the very heart of the gospel. It's to miss the hope of all Christians. And it's to miss the end for which God sent his son to redeem all things, namely 
the recreation of everything, everything. So I wanna show you three things today in our text. Three things. Number one, I want you to see that the resurrection was the heart of apostolic preaching. The foundation of the church, the very beginning of the church, the bedrock of the church must include the resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, without the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus is not good news. It's really bad news. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Paul is saying, hey, to be a Christian in the early church is to be someone that heard the good news of Jesus, which always explicitly included the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we know this because part of the apostolic job description of the people that were eyewitnesses of Jesus and later apostles, part of their job description was to bear witness to the resurrection. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 21. It says, so one of the men... So one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us, a fellow apostle, must become with us a witness, a witness to the resurrection. Part of the apostolic job description of those leaders in the, in the local church, part of their job description was to preach not just the death of Jesus, but to bear witness to Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. And it was the very heart of what they preached. It's the heart of what they preached. In fact, there's, there's a whole lot of sermons in the book of Acts, and every single one of the sermons in the book of Acts is explicitly about the resurrection of Jesus, minus one in Acts 7, and that sermon doesn't include the resurrection because, because before Stephen could get to the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him as he was being stoned. C.S. Lewis put it really well. He said, to preach Christianity meant to preach primarily the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon recorded in Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news which the Christians brought. The resurrection of Jesus was so important to the apostles because they knew that all the powerful things that God was doing in their midst All of the beautiful acts of restoration and redemption and conviction and confrontation with evil, all the things happening in the early church were all the result of Jesus being raised from the dead. There is no church without the resurrection. There is no gospel without the resurrection. There is no future and no hope without the resurrection. There's a killer little book called Raised with Christ. It's one of my favorite books about the resurrection. I used to read it every Easter season. It's written by a guy named Adrian Warnock, who's a medical doctor. And he sums up what they pointed to in the book of Acts as the fruit of the resurrection. Let me list a few things for you. Because of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit was sent to convict us of sin and to change our lives. Because of the resurrection, physical healings happened in the book of Acts. It was the resurrected Jesus that healed people. Because of the resurrection, sinners could be converted. They could repent and come to faith. Because of the resurrection, all of salvation is based on union with Jesus, sharing in his death, and sharing in his life. 
Because of the resurrection, Jesus is the leader of the church, the apostle and high priest. He's not a dead historical figure. He is alive at the right hand of the Father leading the church. Because of the resurrection, there can be forgiveness of sins. Because of the resurrection, there's comfort for the dying. That's Acts 7. Because of the resurrection, there could be the commissioning of gospel messengers to go into all the nations and tell people about Jesus. Because of the resurrection, there's freedom from the power and penalty of sin. That's Acts 13. Because of the resurrection, there's assurance that the gospel is true. How do we know the gospel is true? Because Jesus is alive. Because of the resurrection, we could be confident of our own resurrection on the great day. And because of the resurrection, we have confidence that Jesus will judge the world on the great day. And that may sound like really bad news until you see how evil the world is and you realize that when Jesus returns to judge, all sin, Satan, death, evil, and injustice will be done away with. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth where we'll dwell with God and there will be peace where the lion lays down with the lamb. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. And the resurrection was the heartbeat of what they preached. It was the heartbeat of why they endured suffering. And so for the Corinthians to deny their resurrection, Paul says, is to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And if you do that, you lose the entire ballgame. This leads us to number two. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. We lose the past of our faith. We lose the present hope of our faith. And we lose the future hope of our faith. There is no salvation without Jesus being raised from the dead. And here's what he points out, starting in verse 13. These are the consequences if it's true that the dead aren't raised. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's empty. Your faith is in vain. It's empty. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Listen to this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ or have died have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, the preaching of the gospel is empty. It's just noise. It's just clatter. It's just advice. If Jesus isn't alive, then telling people about what God's done in Jesus is a waste of their time, and it's a waste of your time. We should be at the lake right now. If the resurrection didn't happen, Paul says your faith is empty. You're you're standing on quicksand, not bedrock, and you have no hope of weathering all the storms of this life if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. He says if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're misrepresenting God. You're actually telling lies about God because the resurrection is the definitive moment in human history where the glory and character and power of God is on full display. If the resurrection didn't happen, we have no idea what God's like. And if we didn't have the resurrection, Paul says you would still be in your sins. You'd still be in your sins. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead to be vindicated, then your sins have not been atoned for and you have no hope to stand before God on the day of judgment. Thus, those Christians that have died have perished. That doesn't mean 
some sort of nihilistic, they cease to exist. It means that they stood before God thinking that based on the finished work of Jesus, they would be received as sons and daughters, and instead, they had to be accountable for their sins and crimes against God. Without the resurrection, Paul says, we are all people most to be pitied. This is why any form of Christianity, and there's a few that exist that try to maintain the name Christian while denying the resurrection, any form of Christianity that denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus is something other than Christianity. This is the very center of the Christian life. And we don't know exactly why the Corinthians were denying the resurrection, but but let me just point to a few possibilities that are relevant for our cultural moment. Um, they were steeped in Greek culture that loved to pit the spirit against the body. Greek dualism was famous for doing that. And their idea was that to be truly spiritual, to be truly spiritual is the denial of the importance of the body. They, they were probably a bit embarrassed by the apostolic claims of the physical resurrection of Jesus and their own future bodily resurrection. The body's a prison. The body's a cage. We don't want our body to be raised from the dead. We want to be free from our body so that we can be pure spirits, pure spirits. It's also possible that they were influenced by the Sadducees who were a sect within Judaism that denied the bodily resurrection. It's also possible that it was just connected to their weird, weak, and over-spiritualized eschatology that didn't have a framework for the physical world being recreated in Jesus, including human bodies. Now, I mention those things because those aren't particularly our struggles, but I mention those things because when you stand downstream from philosophy and from worldly teaching, it starts to deeply affect you. It starts to deeply affect you. If you're downriver from pollution and you're drinking the river, you're going to metabolize things that are really bad for you. And all of us, especially 2,000 years after this was written, we're all downstream from a whole mix of things. Some things that are partially true, some things that are totally false. And in this moment, the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, should really sober us. Here's what he said. See to it that no one takes you captive, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Here's what he's saying. One of the things the enemy loves to do is to infuse worldly ideas that lead to captivity and bondage with spiritual power so that people will be deceived and tricked as they stand downstream from things that are the antithesis of the gospel. It's empty deceit. It's empty deceit. Now, Track with me on this for just a second. This doesn't mean that all Christians have to become philosophers to understand every idea so that we can sort through all the ideas and figure out what's good and what's bad about all of them. You don't have to read all the existentialists, all the postmodernists. You don't have to do that. You can do that, but you don't have to do that to be a Christian. What you do have to do, however, is be so steeped in the actual word of God that you can smell things that are contrary to what's true and what's holy and what's beautiful and what's good. So you can sort out what's precious from what's vile. And in this particular moment, like, there's all kinds of beliefs that have their genesis in different teachers and different writers and thinkers that are affecting the way we live, even though we have no idea that those people are infusing the way that we see the good life. 
I was reading a book recently and the author had a great analogy. She talked about how fashion shows are a bit ridiculous. There's these incredibly ridiculous and loud dresses and outfits and and none of us really are even aware of who those fashion designers are. You have to be in a pretty niche part of the world to care about those fashion shows. But what happens over the course of three or four seasons is that the ideas that infused those fashion shows make it to mainline culture and mainline fashion. And so we start to wear people that actually could trace their genesis back to the ridiculous fashion show. And the point is, ideas are like that. Ideas are like that. I don't think many of us in our church are like, you know what, I ascribe to the beliefs of the existentialist. Like Most of us probably couldn't even define what that means, but almost all of us have at least in part bought into the lie that we're autonomous selves that can create our own meaning and author our own lives that we're responsible to build our own identities instead of receiving our identity as a gift, right? Like very few of us have, have read postmodern philosophers, mostly because they're almost impossible to read. <laughs> but almost all of us, almost all of us have bought into the lie that at least to a certain degree, truth is relative. Truth is relative. And the greatest philosophy in our current moment, which is just everywhere, is consumerism, not just, not just as a way of sort of acquiring things that might be fun, but as an actual philosophy of how you find meaning in the world. It's through experiences, it's through acquisition, it's through spending, it's through the right vacation, it's through the right image being projected to the world. And what I just want to say is like, the Corinthians were being deeply affected because they were standing downstream from stuff that was really polluted, but they hadn't done their work to understand the apostolic tradition that had been handed to them so that they could be powerful to refute and to push against the pressure of the world that was coming in on them. So Paul's like, hey guys, what you believe about the resurrection of the body is not downstream from apostolic teaching, which is the truth of God's word. It's downstream from Greek philosophy or from the Sadducees or from your own weird teachers that have come up with weird super spiritual eschatology, but it's not downstream from the resurrection. You're missing what's true and what's good and what's powerful. So Paul is reminding them to stand downstream from the resurrection of Jesus so they can evaluate everything else in their lives. And that's where I want to end today. I want to I end by just naming what does it look like to live downstream from the resurrection? What, what does it look like to actually bank your entire life to put all of your hope on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead? What would that look like and what would that mean? And I want you to read with me again, follow verses 14 through 19. And think about this on the positive now. If the resurrection is not true, then these things about Jesus are not true. But if the resurrection is true, the opposite of these things are true. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. If he has been raised, then their preaching is powerful. If Jesus has not been raised, then their faith is in vain. If Jesus is alive, then their faith has substance. It's granite under their feet. 
Verse 15, if Jesus hasn't been raised, we're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead aren't raised. However, if the resurrection is true, then to preach the gospel is to rightly represent God so that we can know his character and his beauty. He goes on and on, the point being this, if Christ is alive, then preaching the good news is full, not vain. It means that sin, Satan, and death has been defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus and will be destroyed. It means that Jesus has been vindicated and anybody that trusts in him share in his vindication before our Father. It means that faith in Jesus is solid, not empty. Like, life is hard, life is scary. Barring the return of Jesus in our generation, none of us are going to get out of here alive. And death is a bit terrifying. <laughs> it's scary to bury your spouse. It's, it's scary to bury your parents. It's scary to see your loved ones die. It makes us ask deep questions about what life's about. But listen, if the resurrection's true, then death has been defanged. It is certainly an enemy, but it's an enemy that's been defeated and an enemy that's on the clock to be destroyed. And believers in Jesus don't have to be afraid of death. If the resurrection is true, then no matter what suffering and pain and difficulty this world throws your way, under your feet is the foundation of Jesus and nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even death, not even losing your reputation. And if Jesus has been raised, listen, then the gospel is the best representation of God because it tells us about his power, that God is so mighty he can even intervene in human history that's so marked by sin and decay, and rebellion, and evil, and injustice, and God is able to actually, with his power and might, step into all of that, and actually undo the darkest thing that people have to face, which is the curse of sin and death. It means that his character is kind and merciful, that he's at work in history. It means that he's, he is faithful to keep his promises, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it means that you are not in your sins, but you're in Christ. Like, I, I still don't know, after all these years of being a Christian, I still don't know fully how to wrap my mind around the promise of God's word that we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Like, that's crazy to me. We're not just slightly reformed or a little bit tweaked. We haven't just bolted on a few new things to our lives. According to the way God sees us through Jesus, You've already tasted in resurrection power. You've been given a brand new identity. You're a new thing that didn't used to be before God raised you from the dead. Loved, delighted in, chosen. It means that those who have died in Christ did not perish. Christian funerals are to be marked with appropriate grief because death is an enemy but not grief without hope because we believe that as Jesus was raised from the dead, all those that have trusted in him will be raised from the dead. That they haven't perished, but they wait for the return of Jesus. Upon the return of Jesus, as we'll see in the next two weeks, we'll be given new bodies that can't get sick and can't wear out and can't die. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope in death, but we also have hope in this life. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, it literally does change everything. It's worth banking your life on. And that's why Paul adds in verse 20, these words of hope from an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus to the church throughout all time. Paul writes this, 
but in fact, in fact, not mythology, not theory, not rumor or hearsay, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits, first fruits refers to an agricultural term where like you plant the seed in the very beginning of the harvest tells you that the rest of the harvest is coming. And the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of all things being made new. It's the beginnings of the new creation. It's the reminder that even though creation is groaning, there's a day coming because Jesus has been raised where all of us will be raised with him and the very creation itself will be redeemed and restored and made new. The curse will be done away with. Thorns and thistles will be done away with. The world will be exactly as it was meant to be, a temple full of the presence of God with no sin, no evil, no death. And it won't be a spiritual reality alone. It will be a spiritual and a physical reality because in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead. So I wanna say just a couple of things. Man, if you're a follower of Jesus, I wanna remind you that your hope is not in your bank account. Your hope is not in what people say about you. Your hope is not in being able to like Peter Atiyah cheat code your way into living to 130. Your, your hope is not built on having the perfect family or the perfect house. Those are all things that can be good gifts, but they're really vain sources of hope. I want to just call you back today to the foundation of your hope. Why can you have joy in the midst of adversity? Why can you have confidence and peace in the midst of an anxious world? Because Jesus is alive. He's alive and he loves you. And because of his death and his resurrection, if you put your faith in him, you've been made new, you've been forgiven, and God has given you the down, the down payment or the pledge of what he's gonna do because Jesus is the first fruits of what you're gonna fully share in. And, and if you're not a Christian, I just wanna say as clearly as I know how to say, like, Christianity is not just another philosophy. It's not another man-centered religion where we scheme for how we can get back on God's good graces. Christianity is not moralism. It's not just good people trying to do better. It's not just work harder. It's not pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Christianity at its heart is hope and confidence in a historical moment where God broke into this broken world through his son Jesus to give his love and his grace to people that don't deserve it. And it really does change your life. Changes what you love, it changes what you do, but it does so not based on you just trying harder, but based on you falling into the historical reality of what God has done. Trusting in it, banking on it, building on it. So I wanna take a second and pray for you. If you guys would bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I want to ask that um, you would help us <clears throat> to keep coming back to the apostolic foundation of the church, which is the preaching of the death and resurrection. And I pray that if there's places we're downstream from things that aren't true and aren't good and aren't beautiful, and we're uncritically believing them like the Corinthians, that you would give us grace to start to spot 
where those things are incongruent with what you've done for us in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that, um, I pray, Father, that you would help our confidence in the resurrection to grow where we can say with Paul, but in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. I pray that there would be um, not, not a swagger among your people, but I pray that there would be like a chest out, head held high confidence in the face of a broken world and in the face of death that we don't have to be afraid. God, it's scary to be parents. It's scary to be married. It's scary to be single. There's so many things down here that are worthy of our fear if we're alone. But if we're in Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of anything. The worst things that this world can do, the worst things it can do, are tiny and small compared to the height and the depth of what you've done. So I just pray today that there would be joy and faith and confidence and prayer and worship and community that would grow out of the foundation that Jesus is alive. And even as we take a couple of minutes to sing about the resurrection, God, I pray that you would help us to sing these truths into our own souls and that you would expand our heart's ability to build our lives on Jesus. So meet us as we sing and meet us as we come to this supper and fill us. We trust you to do so in Jesus' name.